Thanks, Dan. Well, good morning. We're good to hear from the Lord through His Word. So I encourage you, if you uh, have a Bible, to turn in it to Acts chapter 10. We've been learning in a series all summer about, first of all, motivations for sharing the gospel, and then the how-tos to go and make disciples. And though even, it's, even though it's a pandemic and there's all sorts of things going on socially and politically, um, this is still what the church is to be about. If anything, this is more what we should be about during a time when there's so much upheaval and questioning and despair and outrage. Um, what's the answer? The answer is Jesus Christ, and that comes to people through the gospel. So that's why we're still focused on this series and will be for a couple more weeks. Uh, so what we've been learning is how to communicate and then, uh, and then follow up with the gospel. So we, we have four C's. We've had these four words that all begin with C. Uh, we connect, we care, we communicate, and we commit or ask people to commit to Jesus Christ. So we went to school on those things in the classroom, and now we've been looking at what it looks like on the street, so to speak, when people actually hear the gospel and what it looks like to go out and, and speak it to people. And so what does a conversion story look like in real life? So that's what we've been going through. We went through Zacchaeus uh, a few weeks ago and then the woman at the well last week. And today we turn our attention to Cornelius, who is the subject of Acts chapter 10. And so as we read this, we're going to see that his story is somewhat extraordinary. Uh, things happen there that don't happen in every... Uh, instance <laughs> when you're going to talk to somebody about Jesus, but there are things in his story that are true about every conversion story. And so we're going to look at those this morning. We're going to read all of chapter 10, and it's 48 verses, which is long, but we will not rush through it because this is God's word to us. And so we want to hear everything that he has to say, and then I'll pray. Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed... He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a Great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. 
But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. 
But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him as who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Let's pray. You have repeated this miracle, Lord, over and over and over again for centuries. Not specifically in all the details, but in the heart of it. And so we want to be encouraged today, Lord, to see what you want us to see in this story, to to relate our own experience to this and especially receive encouragement as, as we make the attempt to go out and speak something to people. Show us, Lord, what the encouragement is here, the great hope that we have, not only for our own salvation, which we have in Jesus, but in hope for other people's salvation. We ask you to do that. Open our eyes by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I think back on my conversion at age 19, about how I came to trust Jesus as Savior, it's not a very remarkable story on the surface. I was not a former axe murderer who all of a sudden had a conversion like this one that we just read about and became a changed man overnight. I was just in my college dorm. Uh, People came to my dorm, told me gospel, actually a bunch of people over time. Uh, I didn't really accept it until finally one day I believed. And then I started to follow Christ. And so that was really what it looked like. It wasn't spectacular. Uh, I didn't see a vision of an angel or anything like that. I did not begin speaking in tongues at that moment. It just seemed like the normal process of becoming convinced about the truth of Jesus through conversation with Christians. And maybe that's the experience of many of you. It seems very normal to you, but but the reality of conversion is different from that. Reality is what God says in Ezekiel 37, 14. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, declares the Lord. That's the reality, no matter what it looks like, spectacular or ordinary. It's dramatically illustrated in the conversion of Cornelius that we just read. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word of the gospel. 
following an angelic visitation to Cornelius and a vision to Peter. But the story of every conversion, including yours, if you know Jesus, is this story of God breaking into your life with the Holy Spirit's power to change you, to change what you believe, but really everything about you because you became a new creature in that moment. And it's unfolding as time goes on, as the Spirit works in us. And so I think what the Lord wants to encourage us this morning, as you seek to go about making disciples and and to put into practice what we're learning this summer, is He wants you to know you don't go out alone with your own powers of persuasion and and, uh, thinking, if I don't do it right, nothing's going to happen. I think the story of Cornelius really shows us the presence and power of the Holy Spirit as the ultimate determiner of what is going to happen. Because Jesus is building a church, and he's doing it by his Spirit that he sent, and that Spirit is at work. And we can be confident in that, that the Spirit is working not only in the unbeliever, but also in us and that some are going to live. And so let's just see how this plays out in Acts chapter 10. Um, The account moves from Cornelius to Peter to this dramatic conversion, and so we're going to follow that accounting starting with Cornelius. We can describe Cornelius this way. Cornelius is a non-Christian being drawn by God. He's a non-Christian being drawn by God. He's a very interesting person. Cornelius is. He's, a, he's first of all a Roman centurion. So that means he's in charge of 60 to 80 soldiers. Originally it was 100 a century, but by this time it was less. But to become a centurion was actually kind of a long path for a lot of people. You could work for like 20 years uh, distinguishing yourself in military service before you could be promoted to be a centurion. Um, He has to work his way up through the ranks to get into that kind of a position. It's kind of like becoming a lieutenant colonel uh, in our army, let's say. Pretty important guy. So he's a career military man, and he's doing well for himself. Uh, He has servants, uh, and he has soldiers that will do his bidding, the ones that he sends off to see Peter. Um, He lives in the coastal city of Caesarea, so you can imagine him having a nice villa overlooking the blue waters of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, He's doing well for himself, Um, and unexpectedly, he's religious. And not in the uh, pagan idol worship of the Roman soldiers of the day, where they had little shrines in their houses that they would burn incense to. It says that he's a God-fearer. He is a devout man who feared God with all his household. So a God-fearer is a name for someone who is not a Jew, but who believes in the God of the Jews. He hasn't been circumcised. He doesn't follow all the food regulations and so forth. But he does think that the Jewish God is the one that he should pray to. And so he does that continually, it says. Then one day the unexpected happens. An angel of God visits him with this daytime vision. Uh, Three o'clock in the afternoon, a man in bright clothing, he says later on. And and he sees this vision of, of an angel, and the angel speaks, and he's terrified. And the angel tells him, send some men to get Simon, called Peter. 
And actually, Acts 11, 13 and 14 fills in more of what the angel said to Cornelius. He said, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. That's Acts 11, 13 and 14. So Cornelius is a devout man. He's a praying man, but he's not saved. He has to hear a message from Peter by which he will be saved. He doesn't know Jesus yet. He doesn't know the gospel, but the Spirit is working on Cornelius to change that. The Spirit's working on him. Because later in verse 20, the Spirit says to Peter to go with the men who are coming, for I have sent them. The Spirit says, I sent those guys. <laughs> Meaning back in that angelic visitation, that was me working. <laughs> I was doing that. I'm orchestrating this rendezvous between Cornelius and Peter so that he can hear a message. That's God working in the heart of an unbeliever before Peter even knows this man exists. Here's the takeaway from that. This is an encouragement that God is at work preparing some people to come to faith even before we meet them. It means that we should not always look around us and think, there is no faith, there is nothing going on anywhere in this culture, in my, in my extended family, in my workplace. Uh, nothing's happening until I open my mouth. Oh no, <laughs> oh no, the Holy Spirit is working. There are Corneliuses sprinkled around out there, and you don't even know what God is doing in their life, but he's doing something. Before Peter knows Cornelius is even on the map, God's drawing this man. Who would have expected a hardened military man in a pagan empire to be open to the message about Jesus Christ? Who would have expected it? You wouldn't, you wouldn't think that that's the kind of guy you should uh, waste any of your time on, so to speak. And yet here's a guy that's ready because God's at work. And he does that in people that you wouldn't expect. And I was reminded of that this week. I uh, went to a coffee shop on Wednesday, one I hadn't been to before. And uh, I was thinking, because it was one of those places where you can get the takeout, but you can't dine in. So uh, they got some tables on the outside. So I go, and I'm going to work on the tables outside for a few hours. So I go in. There's nobody in the building except one barista, and she's like young 20s. And I don't know, maybe I'm stereotyping people, <laughs> but I'm not expecting a young 20-something barista in the secular city of Denver to be open to or interested in Jesus Christ at all, you know? I read the, the studies that say 3 to 6% of our youngest generation is professing Christ. You know, that's not much. So I'm thinking, okay, well, probably nothing here, but I might as well find out, right? <laughs> so because I'm a pastor, I got a, an easy way to open the conversation. I just say, hey, I'm here looking for another place to work. I'm a pastor, and I want to get outside of my office. And so kind of throwing that bait out there. And I'm thinking, okay, that'll just come and go, whoosh. Uh, but no, I was surprised. She was, she was delighted. Oh, you're a pastor, really? You know, I would love to go to church, but I can't because they're all closed because of the pandemic. 
And I'm thinking, wow, I didn't expect that. So we engaged some more, and we talk, and she eventually says, you know, I'd be interested in, in checking out your church. Now, we didn't get into the gospel conversation after that. Um, I took my, cup, my thing, and I went outside. But I was instructed by that. I was thinking, yeah, yeah, my, my, my human sense says nothing can happen here. And yet, unbeknownst to me, God was working in that woman. She had some reason she wanted to go to church. God's at work in people, just as he was in Cornelius, just as he was with me at age 19. And so it was with you. The hound of heaven, as he is sometimes called, is pursuing people. He is making the soil of some hearts good so that one day when the gospel seed lands on it, fruit will grow. Salvation will happen. So friends, don't let the secular drift of our culture make you think nobody is interested in Christ because that's not true. God has his people. He has a church he's building. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Cornelius sends off his servants to get Peter, and the account moves on to Peter. So here's what we can say about Peter. Another fascinating person that I'm very encouraged by. Peter is a Christian still learning the implications of grace. He's still learning the implications of grace. He's a guy who gives me a lot of hope about how God can change us. You know Peter is the impulsive disciple who always speaks first and then asks questions later. That's kind of his history in the Gospels. Uh, he tried to chop off the servant's head when they came to arrest Jesus. He only got the ear. Um, just ready to just do stuff, you know? Uh, he's the disciple who professed his undying commitment to Jesus, only to deny later that he even knew him because he was afraid for his life. So that's the Peter before the resurrection. After the resurrection, this Peter becomes a new man, a changed man. He becomes a bold preacher of the gospel in Acts chapter 2. He, he's rejoicing at having been arrested and beaten for the sake of Christ in, Romans, or in, in Acts chapter 5. Uh, he's a maturing leader of the church uh, in, Roman, in, in, I keep saying Romans, in Acts chapter 9 where he starts visiting cities where there's disciples springing up here and there, and he's going to kind of see what's going on there. But like any of us, Peter, for all of that, is a guy who's still on a journey. Namely, he still has a major blind spot about how God's grace changes things, about, about how it changes our relationships with other people and who we will associate with. Peter was reluctant, even resistant, to embracing Gentiles, non-Jews, as fellow objects of God's mercy. As a Jew, he had been brought up to believe that they should be avoided, and the Spirit was about to work on that in his life. So let's look at the highlights of Peter's story. He goes up to the rooftop to pray, probably because there's a breeze up there, solitude. It's around lunchtime. He's hungry, so he asks for something to eat, so he's not fasting. You might say this is a normal day of devotion to God. And while lunch is being prepared, something extraordinary happens. He falls into a trance and sees a vision. And what he sees is this sheet full of animals 
that you are not permitted to eat under Jewish laws, things like reptiles, which I think is actually a good prohibition. I, I don't know why I would eat a lizard. But anyway, that's in the bag. And so he sees all these things. He's forbidden to eat under Jewish law. And he hears the Lord telling him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter's repulsed by that. I have never eaten anything <laughs> that's common or unclean, he says. That's just wrong. That would defile me. That would make me unholy. I wouldn't be able to attend temple worship if I did that. But the Lord says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Go ahead, Peter. You can eat this. Now, Peter doesn't get the vision. It says he's perplexed. He's like, what was that all about? But the application comes immediately. Because it isn't really about unclean food. It's about people that Peter sees as unclean. Because he won't bring the gospel to Gentiles. He won't go into their homes to do that. They're off limits. I can't be with you. That's what he's thinking. And that's what the Spirit's going to work on. Because just then, the Gentile servants of Cornelius arrive on Peter's doorstep. They're ready to take him into Cornelius' house. So this is getting worse and worse all the time from the unclean perspective. First, you got some Gentiles coming to you, and they're saying, now come to us. Come into our home. This is, this is like going the full Monte all the way in uh, to the thing that you don't think you can do. So Peter figures it out. Oh, this must be connected to the vision. Because the Spirit says to Peter, accompany them without hesitation. Or in the words of the, other, of the vision, what God has made clean, do not call uncommon. Meaning these Gentiles. I want you to go to them. I want you to be with them. So Peter had been brought up culturally to think they're unclean. You don't associate with them. We know that because when he gets to their house, first thing out of his mouth is he says, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. That's kind of a, not a good opening line, I think, if you're trying to preach the gospel to somebody. You know I shouldn't be here. <laughs> but that's where he's at or was at because he's starting to figure out, wait a minute, the Spirit sent me here to be here. This is God saying do this. And so he's starting to figure it out. God wanted Peter to understand that salvation is for all people. Because salvation is God's undeserved favor to anyone who calls on the name of Jesus to be saved, to be forgiven of sin. Whether that's from the Jews or the Gentiles. Jesus is not the Savior of Jews only, but of the whole world. As Paul would put it in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Meaning, we are all one in our need for Christ and in God's provision of Christ as our Savior, no matter who we are. So Peter gets to the home of Cornelius and he says, God has shown me that I should not call any person unclean, common or unclean. He learned the lesson. He grew in the implications of grace. He figured it out that he should view all people as fellow sinners 
in need of the Savior, the lost that Jesus came to save. The Spirit's going to do that for us as well. He is going to grow us in grace. Uh, Like Peter, he's going to put us in uncomfortable situations that challenge us to reveal to us where we haven't worked out the implications of the gospel in our own lives. So when you get to a situation where you're like, I don't like this at all, you could just complain, or you could say, I wonder what God is up to. He wonder what he's teaching me through this. Because he is sovereign over everything. This isn't random. He put me here. What's he trying to teach me? As it relates to going and make disciples, here's what he's teaching Peter. Here's what, here's what he's teaching us, I think. What has to die in us is any sense of self-righteousness. That, that Jesus came for me, but not for you. That kind of mentality, the mentality of Isaiah 65, 5, that says, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. That's what has to die in us. Grace will kill it <laughs> if we understand that we are saved totally by the blood of Christ and not by our own efforts, not by our own goodness, not by our nationality or wherever we came from. That will die. We can assume that we've done something right to deserve forgiveness of sin and that other people haven't done that. And so I'm just going to say, well, I'm not going to spend any time with you. That's the self-righteousness that has to go away because that's not what the gospel teaches us. The gospel says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by God's grace as an undeserved gift through faith. We all become the beloved of God, not by our religious practices, not because we grew up in a church or anything like that, but by the sheer mercy of God. We need that perspective in order to overcome our reluctance to befriend and spend time with non-believers. Grace removes the self-righteousness, so we see other people as just like us in our need for Jesus. And so we get compassion and freedom to associate with and visit people that we might think of as unclean. But God doesn't want us to view anybody that way. So here's what that can look like. Maybe you have a neighbor who says things and does things that make it real obvious, not a Christian. Right? Maybe it's the vulgar language, maybe smells like weed, uh, maybe in a same-sex relationship, and whatever it is, it makes you uncomfortable. And so perhaps unintentionally, you just kind of write them off and think, well, they're off limits. <laughs> I don't ever want to go into their home or get too involved in their lives, and so you don't. That is not different than Peter's reluctance to go into a Gentile home. God's grace says, It is to such as these that I sent my Son into the world to save. Just like I did for you. So don't call them unclean. Don't stiff-arm them. Don't ignore them. Don't avoid them. Don't like go a different direction if you see them in the aisle in the grocery store. Like That's the same kind of an issue. 
They said, don't do that. Like, I'm, I'm putting you in an uncomfortable situation on purpose because I want you to be salt and light. I, I have a reason for this encounter and for this person living next to you or working with you or in your extended family. This is an opportunity to, for them to have an encounter with grace. So we risk the association. And who knows, but that they might be people that God is drawing to himself like a military man in a pagan empire. Now, of course, there are situations you shouldn't get involved in. Proverbs says, If sinners entice you, do not consent, and the companion of fools will surely suffer harm. So if, if getting involved in somebody else's unhealthy life is going to influence you more than you're going to influence them, maybe you shouldn't. There are some boundaries, but the impulse of grace is that we go out living in the good of the grace of God and want to invite other people into that with us. And only if we see after the fact this is not helping them or me, uh, then maybe we move on, you know. I think about myself at age 19. I I was the one doing and saying the non-Christian things. I was the unclean person that believers had every reason to avoid, humanly speaking. I was self-centered and proud. I had vulgar speech. I was concerned with nothing more than having a good life and having as much fun as possible. And I rejected all the early gospel attempts uh, that when people came to my dorm room, and I just said, no thanks except for the last one, (laughs) where the Holy Spirit opened up my heart. God in his mercy sent me another Peter. (laughs) After other Peters, he kept sending me Peters. And I finally believed. People that he had worked on, people who had understood the implications of grace, people who thought, you know what, it's worth spending an hour or two going around trying to find somebody to talk to about Jesus. God was working in them, and they didn't know that he was working on me at the same time because by the time that last guy got to me, I had already read through the whole Bible. I had already had at least two people share the gospel with me, and he walked right into a guy who was ready. He had no idea. And you might be that person. God would want us to be available. But we need to grow in grace because that's what releases all the barriers. Uh, for doing it. Leads to the conversion of Cornelius and his household. How this story ends. Here's what we can say about that. Conversion happens when the Spirit brings grace-taught believers to God-drawn unbelievers around the truth of the gospel. That's the divine formula, if you will. (laughs) It happens, conversion happens when the Spirit brings grace-taught believers to God-drawn unbelievers around the truth of the gospel. That's what you see happen at the end here. The conversion in the home of Cornelius is very dramatic. It's painted in living colors. It's the kind of thing we would love to see happen, you know, every time or any (laughs) time that we share the gospel with somebody. But again, the elements of it are present in every conversion, Cornelius has been prepared. He's ready to hear. 
what, what Peter has to say. He's ready to hear this message by which he will be saved. God's already been at work in him. And Peter has grown in grace by the time he gets there. God has shown me something that I shouldn't call you unclean. He's, he's grown in the understanding of grace himself, and it's, and it's sent him out. And when he gets there, what does he do? He preaches the gospel. That's the message by which we are saved. He talks about Jesus, who went about doing good, he says, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This Jesus, who they put to death, he talks about the death of Christ, put to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day, brings in resurrection, made him to appear to his witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This Jesus commanded us to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and dead. And this Jesus is the one that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is what he's saying to Cornelius and his household. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I just want to see that. Don't you want to just see that? I mean, while he's saying it, he doesn't really have a bunch of time to like kind of elaborate. Like, okay, so now you heard that. So now let me explain all that. You know, let me go through my tract or, or my, my presentation. It's like while he's just talking about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, boom! <laughs> it's already happened. <laughs> and they were baptized. And they began speaking in tongues and extolling God. They're transformed people. They even say, we want you to stay for a few more days. We, we, we want to get grounded in this. We want to know more. <laughs> what, what a great thing. But it's, that, it's the spirits that, that's involved in all of this. In Cornelius and then Peter. And then in that moment, that moment of salvation where he just makes it happen and regeneration happens. By the Spirit. Here's the implication for us. We have this C4 process. We communicate, or we connect with people first. We say, hello, my name is, what's your name? <laughs> we care, we do something. We, we get involved in some level. Meet a real need for another fellow human being. We communicate gospel like, like Peter was doing here. There's, there's a Savior, we're sinners, there's forgiveness to be had. We invite people, commit to that, trust that. I mean, put your all into Him. You know, trust Him as the Savior. Walk with Him. That, that's the process that we've learned. That's a roadmap for us to help people meet Jesus. And it's a good one. It's a biblical one. It's what we do. But we must not burden ourselves with the thought that someone's conversion ultimately depends on how well we do that. And how persuasive we are. The Spirit is working. <laughs> I mean, Peter did not have time to go through all those steps. <laughs> he just shows up. They're like, tell us something. He tells them and boom. All right? Like, he skipped the first three. Well, he skipped the first two, <laughs> I guess. It's not always like the, the textbook, shall we say. What matters is God is at work. The Spirit is at work. And we can trust that he is working. 
all around us in individuals because Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. How could it be plentiful if the workers are few, right? I mean, if it depended on the workers, there would be no harvest, right? But it's already there. The workers just go get it. So that means fundamentally God's working in people. They're out there. The Corneliuses are out there. So just go. Just, just get started. Just open our mouths. And who knows? Who knows what God is doing? Who knows what the outcome could be? And, and yes, it, it's, sometimes it's rejection. Uh, and many times it's indifference. But always it's planting seeds. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes the Spirit falls. <laughs> it happened to you if you're a believer. Maybe not with the drama here, but it happens. It did happen. It will happen again. Titus 3.5 says, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's always that people are born again by the Spirit. So take heart in knowing that. If God is drawing a person to himself, and if you are growing in grace, and you have a heart to see somebody to come to Christ, and if you know the basics about life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then everything is in place for the Holy Spirit to fall on a person and give life. Salvation is from the Lord. So be encouraged. You're not alone. God's with you. God's going before you. If he's drawing somebody, they will be saved. All we really need to do is cultivate a sensitivity to the Spirit's leading by prayer and the Word. You know, Peter wasn't fasting that day. He was having a normal day. <laughs> but he had become sensitive to the Spirit. He was one who did devote himself to the Word of God in prayer. And that made him alert. And, that, and it made his heart line up with God's heart. And when you're in that position, you're much more likely to recognize the opportunities around you and also be drawn to taking those opportunities. So it starts with our own growth in grace as we devote ourselves to Christ and receive from Him life. And who knows what's on the other side of those encounters that we're going to have. But I just trust that there is a plentiful harvest because Jesus said so. May the Lord give us the joy of the parable of the coin. There is the lost coin. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. May the Lord give us that joy over and over again as we go forth. Let's pray. Lord, I just know there's so many things that are distracting our attention day by day. I even know this series on going and making disciples might seem like a a secondary issue when there's so many other things that seem so important to us. And yet in the heavenlies, you sent Jesus to come and save sinners. This, this is the heart of what it looks like to change the world, to change individuals. And so we pray that you would help us to enjoy your grace ourselves and, and also to be free to, to share with others and not have anybody that we call unclean, nobody that we would say no to as far as getting to know. We ask for your help in that, and we thank you, Lord, for the, for the 
salvation that is to come by different people that we know. In Jesus' name, amen.